This is Purple Radio On Demand. They were in the playoffs. They were in the playoffs. Just the joy of being out there and seeing my scribblings and lectures come to life. And because of the abuse that I've received at, um, you know, under-14s girls' games, I really didn't want to do it. It's not sort of a long-term thing that we can condone. Hello! What do you get when you combine a radio and the colour purple? Purple radio, of course. My name's Luke Power, and you're listening to Gone Too Far, probably the only podcast you're listening to at this exact moment. And what a choice you've made. Today, we'll be reflecting on our experiences as football referees and coaches. We'll be discussing the championship title race, and we'll be reminiscing about some vaguely defined glory years of the Premier League, basically any year that's not this year. And we might even have a mystery phone-in from a very famous name. The manager who comes needs to know from day one what the league's all about. But more on that later. And uh, luckily for you, it's not just me. I couldn't be bothered to do it all on my own. So I am joined by three very special guests who are more appealing than myself. First of all, James Gascoigne returning to Gontivar. How are you, James? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad my performance was good enough to warrant a second occasion. Yeah, no, absolutely it was. It was an outstanding performance. And somebody who's hoping to bring another strong showing today, Matt Styles, Mr Chili. How are you? Yeah, no, I echo what James said. Great to be back in the studio. I mean, when I say studio, it's my depressing college room, but uh, that'll have to do. It's a state of mind. That's what the studio is. Um, <laughs> last but not least, a man who despises bacon and marshmallow toasties. It is J- James Reed. Uh, thanks, Luke. I don't feel like it's a defining part of my personality, but I'm um, honoured to be back on the programme yet again. What is the defining part of your personality? I haven't really thought about it that much now that you put me on the spot, but it's not um, my toasty choice. Well, I don't know. I mean, you can tell a lot about somebody from what sort of toasties they eat. So first of all, we are going to talk about the championship. A lot of people, and when they're speaking in cliches, say, oh, it's the most exciting league in the world. My contention is that it's not. We have six very big clubs, apart from Bournemouth, but recently they, they can be counted as a Premier League club. Six clubs who are very big in the top six. Um, we'll come to you first, Matt Styles. Are there any sort of interesting things you've noticed about the championship this season? Anything you want to pick up on? Yeah, as you referred to, sort of the hegemony of the top six uh, isn't something you usually associate with the championship, which I found not depressing as such, but it is quite expected when you look at the calibre of teams in there. But that's not to say that, you know, Cardiff under Mick McCarthy, they could they could climb up. Um, you've got Bristol City, who, I mean, injury-stricken, but could always pull off a few good results. Um, it's still interesting, despite that, that top six sort of concretising itself. You've got some real interesting names that could get promotion. You just can't tell. Uh, I think for me, Swansea, they're my favourites personally. Um, and they've got what it takes. I don't know if, if you have any favourites. Yeah, I agree. I think the advantage, you know, Norwich obviously are four points ahead of Brentford in second place and they, they beat my two favourites. I think also Norwich did really well at hanging on to their best players after coming down. Sometimes you kind of associate relegation with some disaster exodus and everybody leaves, but obviously they've still got Pookie firing the goals up front, Cantwell, Emi Buendia, the enduringly popular goalkeeper whose name I refuse to mention because I think he had quite a bad season in the Premier League last season, but people seem to like Tim Krull. Anyway, um, James Reid, would you like to come in? You're smiling a bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think with the Championship this season, I think what we're finally seeing is the 
the product of championship clubs being run properly. I think the sort of the championship is often seen as this like sort of crazy league, but a lot of it is mental owners, clubs spending way beyond their means. And sort of with COVID and with sort of the EFL slowly starting to crack down on sort of Derby and Sheffield Wednesday selling their stadiums to themselves and other ridiculous financial mechanisms. The top four clubs there are really some of the best run clubs in various different ways. I think I really like Brentford's model. Uh, you can see the success they've had with sort of Ollie Watkins now doing really well in um, the Premier League for Aston Villa and then being immediately replaced by Ivan, Ivan Tony, who's very, very close to breaking sort of the all-time championship record for sort of goal contributions. Uh, Norwich were basically almost prepared for relegation. Um, they sort of really end sort of benefiting from the parachute payments rather than sort of splurging cash and then it all going wrong. Uh, they sort of held their nerve a little bit sort of accepted going down to then be stronger, coming back up, sort of doing what Burnley did a few years ago. Uh, and then Swansea, I really, really like uh, Steve Cooper at Swansea, a really good manager, has done quite well with sort of the loans that he's been able to bring in both last season and this season. Um, so I think those three are probably the favourites. Watford, obviously, is slightly differently running. It's a bit of a mental way they run with sort of the whole Udinese and Granada sort of triangle mm-hmm. going on. Um, but they've got some really good players, young players, Ben Wilmot, who uh, come, hails from local to me and uh, a few other sort of players where they sort of, they've been on loan for four seasons and suddenly returned to Watford. They're sort of their depth of squad is quite ridiculous. So you expect that those four will be the, the favourites, really. Yeah, yeah, you're very right. They have a lot of depth. And also, Ivan Tony, you pick up on, the top scorer and the top assister in the league. It's quite a rare position to hold and then... I think the big fear for Brentford coming into the season was, hey, Ben Rama and Watkins, they've walked out the door. Are we going to be able to sustain our high level when you know, we keep losing our best players? You had a Lasse Viva leave a couple of seasons ago as well, and everyone thought, well, could that be the end? But they brought Tony up from Peterborough, and he's done really, really well. Mr Gascoigne, you were talking before about Bournemouth uh, slipping away. Are you surprised by that? And any other thoughts on the championship? Uh, well, I quite like Jonathan Woodgate. I think he can do a job. I think he's, since coming in, he's had an all right show of uh, run of games so far. So I think Bournemouth might shoot back up. I think it's very interesting this season. We see these three relegated Premier League teams who are still you know, sticking around at the top of the championship. In previous years, teams like Huddersfield have really dropped off and looked nowhere near coming back up. But Bournemouth, Watford and Norwich are all fighting to get back into the Prem. But then you've also got these other teams run by very traditional championship managers. You've got Neil Warnock at Borough. You've got McCarthy at Cardiff, um, who are all fighting to get back in. I don't think you can look past Borough with Warnock's record of most promotions from the championship. But I think it's very interesting. And especially with Stoke, um, I think they've got some great players. I think they can shoot back up. Jack Clark, he's a local lad to me on loan from Spurs, um, made the switch away from Leeds last season. I certainly think he can do a job. Some of his uh, performances in their games have been uh, quite amazing, really. He's a very talented player, so I think he, he might be able to drag them up. But I would agree. I don't think you can look past Norwich and Brentford for promotion, especially with Farker at Norwich. And as everyone has already mentioned, some of the quality of their players, Buendir, Cantwell, um, managed to keep a hold of Max Ahrens, who at one point Barcelona were interested in. So I think very much so Norwich and Brentford will be the ones to get automatic promotion. And then out of them, I could see only Swansea really winning in the playoffs. 
yeah, pretty much ag agreed on that. We all see him. It's interesting you bring in the other clubs sort of hovering below, of course, Cardiff for six points behind Bournemouth. It's not an unpluggable gap. It's going to take a lot of effort and they're going to have to hope that your beloved Jonathan Woodgate or whoever steps in to replace him doesn't hit a good run of form. But on that note, I believe we do actually have a, a phone-in coming from a, a very special celebrity guest. It is Paul Merson. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, I'm doing all right, Luke. And uh, you've you've got an opinion you you've got an opinion you want to voice on the situation, Paul, don't you? I, w I want to go with someone who's been in this league before. Who, who's got? They need to come into this. The, the manager who comes needs to know from day one what the league's all about. What do we make of that? Is that just a mythology? It seems like a pretty big cliche to me, uh, Mister Gascoigne. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a huge cliche. Uh, I like Merson, but on this point, I don't really think he knows what he's talking about. You look at McCarthy and you look at Warnock. I mean, they are doing well, undoubtedly, but they're not doing as well as some of these other young managers who are, you know, in the championship. I think you need championship experience to be a good manager. And I think Woodgate might prove us, prove us all wrong and Merson in particular wrong. See, I'm not inspired by Jonathan Woodgate at all. He had an absolutely awful season with Middlesbrough last year, pretty much a a full season with them. James Reed, you're nodding along. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe it's right. Someone like Danny Cowley, someone with experience in the English leagues, if we're going to talk about him, maybe, but surely not Jonathan Woodgate. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, like, that opinion of sort of knowing the league doesn't really add up. If, even if you look at the clubs now, Daniel Farker wasn't at Norwich for very long until, and then won the championship. Steve Cooper was involved in the England setup for quite a few years before switching to Swansea, Watford by probably more, less of their managers and then their numerous managerial changes and more sort of the sheer weight of their their wealth and squad. And um, Reading managers come over from the MLS this season. So this idea that sort of you need to know the league, perhaps if you were sort of in a relegation scrap, I could sort of understand that a little bit in terms of knowing sort of how to grind out a one nil away at Barnsley or something, you know, sort of there's a, there's a particular art in that, perhaps. But in terms of getting promoted and sort of dominating the league, obviously, you know, Warnock's done it a few times, but I don't think this idea that you can sort of... And even then, I don't think Woodgate does know the league that well. Like, he's, he's done one season in, um, in, in the Championship and not done very well. I was, actually, I saw Patrick Vieira linked to the job. I would have liked to see him get it. He did well at, at New York City and Nice, but they seem to be going with Thierry Henry, so... It'd be good to see how it gets along. Kieran Rui and Wayne Rooney in the league and managing the league together. Yeah, I think the problem for me, it kind of makes out there's some compendium of knowledge that if you spend long enough around the championship, you get to know it and that's the formula to success. I mean, Jonathan Woodgate, he's managed there for one season. As a player, he had about 50 games in the league. It's not like he's some championship veteran. And like you rightly say, four of the five clubs above them have managers who were never previously involved in English football and they're all doing perfectly well. So I, I, I'm not sure if Thierry Henry is the right choice. They do seem to be going with him. I don't know what you make of Mr. Henry, Matt Styles, but to me his uh, record's uninspiring. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'd be a tremendous leap of faith to go with Henry, surely. I mean, what, ninth in the MLS with Montreal, is it? Or something yeah. uninspiring. You know, he's pretty terrible at Monaco. Uh, but yeah, as James said, we could, it could we could prove be proved wrong completely. Um, the the blurring between Premier League and the top of the Championship now is such that I think you need to know the league. Uh, you need to just be a good tactician. Um, and I think Henri 
hasn't proved himself in that way at all. So no, to put it bluntly, no, I'm not. I'm not convinced that he will do a job in the same way that I wasn't convinced that uh, Jason Tindall would do the job. <gasps> Why weren't you convinced with Jason Tindall? Well, he's just a prototype of Eddie Howe. It didn't seem like a massive departure from what they already had. Well, why would you want to depart from Eddie Howe? He's a very successful manager with Bournemouth. Yeah, but not in that last period where they were absolutely terrible. Surely you can't base your opinion of Eddie Howe just on that one season. Well, of course not, no, but clearly things were going wrong and Jason Tinder was part of that. Mm, I don't know. What, What are the other people thinking in this call? Was it right to get rid of Jason Tundall? Was it the wrong appointment in the first place? They were in the playoffs. They were in the playoffs. You see clubs come down. Sunderland, they, they, they got relegated from the championship. Wigan, two seasons in, got relegated from the championship. Bournemouth should be happy to just avoid a disaster. I, am, I do tend to agree a little bit in terms of, I think Bournemouth were relegated with, in particularly unfavourable circumstances with COVID and their own financial situation wasn't particularly rosy. They'd invested heavily in a lot of, bad players um, and were still paying off a lot of those transfer fees as they were getting relegated to sort of some ridiculous figure to actually to sort of bounce back and sort of be in contention because I think as we know like you can in you can be going into the final few days of the season and even if you're in sort of 12th or 13th in the championship you you're usually with a, a outside chance of um, making the playoffs so for Bournemouth to sort of sit even within the playoffs or you know very much in contention I think it was harsh but I can understand sort of this idea of a lot of former Premier League clubs have this image of them just sort of romping back to the Premier League, sort of new, like how Newcastle often do when they go down. But obviously Bournemouth just aren't that size of the club. Uh, yeah, I think some of the quality of Bournemouth's players have been very poor, especially when they're in the Prem. You've got to look at Dominic Solanke for billing. Uh, you know, I rate Lewis Cook, but I think he's on a bit of a downwards trajectory. Um, Asma Begovic and goal, not the most sturdiest of uh, players. And I just think with some of the quality that they had, I think it's perhaps more on the players than it is the manager. But if we are to be believed that Eddie Howe had a hand in all these transfers, then perhaps they were right to get rid of him for Tyndall. And I don't think Tyndall has brought in much quality since. I think maybe with Wiltshire and Brooks in the midfield, it might you know strengthen them a little bit down the spine. But I think any manager's got his work cut out managing that crop of players. We're underestimating the quality of this Bournemouth team. I don't know why we're doing them down so much. I mean, what? Brooks, uh, Lerma, Stacey, all great championship players. And for them to be in the playoffs is minimum. I mean, five losses, wasn't it, on the back of his um, sacking? Uh, you know, five points from eight games, six goals in eight games, wins only coming from Oldham and Crawley. Too defensive, no vision there. I, don't, I think we're massively underestimating the talent of that Bournemouth team. And Tyndall was not exploiting it in any way you've got has-beens in the squad like Wilshire and Solanke just because he's coming into his own now oh everyone oh what a great player Dominic Solanke is he scored about one goal in three seasons at Premier League level you don't expect him to get you promoted from the championship I, I, I agree Bournemouth have a strong squad but I don't think you should say oh well you have to get promoted with it it's just not how things play out well I, I think Man for man, they're probably one of the best teams in the championship, if not the best team. Would you back yourself to manage them and get them promoted then? Look, I'm not saying any old so-and-so can walk in and get a team promoted, no. Oh, he's going red! But I'm just saying Tyndall was an uninspiring choice. They should have looked elsewhere for a bit of innovation. And he just seemed like another Eddie Howard, my book. Okay, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on these clubs to get back up, you know, with the amount of money in the Premier League. That's why Watford got rid of 
Ivich so quickly in, in December, even though they were in the playoffs. To finish this segment, who is the right man to come in? Is there a right man that you were back to come in and sort Bournemouth out? I think it's difficult to know what Bournemouth want, isn't it, really? I think, as sort of Matt was slightly, as we sort of all alluded to, really, is whether you think it was the right decision or the wrong decision to get rid of Tyndall. It's not really clear what Bournemouth want in a manager. If you were sort of, Tyndall was the give it time. If we get promoted in two or three years, then that's fine. Like it's a rebuilding project option. But clearly that wasn't the, the target for Bournemouth. The, the target is going straight back up. So then potentially they need a more experienced manager that reflects that aim. And Henri doesn't really fit that bill either. So it's not quite clear what they what they want. Yeah, I think that's a very perceptive viewpoint to end on. And we'll see how it plays out. And maybe Jonathan Woodgate could be a good manager in the long term. Not every manager succeeds straight away. And surely with Harry Redknapp looking over his shoulder, uh, nothing can go too wrong. Um, moving on, we are going to be reflecting now on rose-tinted years. We're, we're looking back, not last season, not the season before. A bit further back, maybe to when we were young children roaming the streets and then we'd come in at 10 o'clock on match of the day, we'd see Emerson Boyce gracing the screens or something like that. Who are we going to pick? James Gascoigne, who's your favourite player of the early years or one of your favourite players? Who do you look back on fondly? I've gone for a more of a streets won't forget approach. And I've, I was, I was, you know, I'm denying whether to go for a uh, Man City player but you know you look past before 2008 and there's not an abundance of quality there to choose from so I've gone for a little bit of a weird direction here and I've gone for Bobby Zamora uh, specifically his time at Fulham and the memory of Bobby Zamora I think we can all agree was his uh, uh, goal against Juventus in the Europa League uh, quarterfinals and then when he he, uh, wound up uh, Cannavaro and got him sent off Pretty impressive performance with the 4-1 victory over Juventus at Craven Cottage. I don't think you can look past Bobby Zamora uh, as an incredible striker he was. That Fulham run to the final was bizarre. I mean, I think when you look at the final, it's like a sort of colliding of like sort of footballing eras. Like, you know, Fulham has sort of Breder Hangeland at the back. And then, but they were, he was coming up against Diego Forlan, who was sort of coming towards the twilight of his career and sort of a young Sergio Aguero. It was sort of this bizarre thing that sort of the football gods had chucked up where sort of Simon Davies uh, is playing in a Europa League final against sort of one, one of the greatest, one of the greatest future strikers in the world in Sergio Aguero, you know, and sort of you've got Roy Hodgson managing this sort of team of also Rams all the way there. Yeah, it's the, uh, I've just pulled up the lineup now. You've got David De Gea in goal for Atletico Madrid. And then the Fulham's goalkeeper is Mark Schwarzer. And the centre midfield holding it all together for Fulham is Damien Duff. Another, you know, very odd Premier League choice to have. And Danny Murphy, now much of the day, pundit to some varying degrees of success, captaining that side. And it was only a very narrow loss with the 2-1 after extra time. I think Fulham's run to the final is just something that the streets will never forget which is why I think I had to pick someone from the team. It was between Clint Dempsey or Bobby Zamora. But I think Bobby Zamora, just such an incredible striker, a very awful goal return wherever he went. But memories of me as a young lad on the field, punting a ball into the top right-hand corner, screaming Bobby Zamora's name as I did so. 
I don't know how many other people would have been screaming Bobby Zamora's name. Um, he's an interesting idol to have, but you're right. He does encapsulate that era, quite a rugged striker. He kept getting chances over and over again, even though he, he didn't put the ball on the back of the net all the time. And we'll come along to James Reed swinging round on his chair. Um, I, I've actually gone with um, Morton Gamps Pedersen. Oh, too um, cliche. Well, no, but I feel like I feel like he actually just sort of sums up that sort of prime Barclays, 05 to 09 era. You know, he loved the loved the free kick. Sort of, there was a lot of Norwegians hanging around in the Premier League at that time, and that Blackburn team sort of went under Big Sam and uh, Mark Hughes were never going to get relegated, but never really going to challenge sort of the archetypal mid-table side before the Venkies arrived. Um, and just one of those players that was just obviously like a very, very talented player, but somehow sort of just never moved on from Blackburn. But for whatever reason was, um, yeah, I think, you know, very, very good at a dead ball, technically sound, but stuck in sort of the northwest. Yeah, no, the streets won't forget sort of Barclays prime era is one that is, is something I held dear as well. Um, I tried to not be too cliche there. I was going to go for Roque Santa Cruz and, you know, main or Figaro perhaps. But that Blackpool team... Uh, you know those players that just make you feel safe for those periods of time they feel really safe when Blackpool went top of the league against Wigan I think 2009-10 and um, 4-0 win with Marlon Harewood and Gary Taylor Fletcher DJ Campbell they, they all come into one one mass player um, just what they exemplified for me at the time just underdogs uh, playing football and winning games occasionally but I don't know there are those strikers who are sort of not quite good enough for the Premier League, but a little bit too good for the Championship, or sort of those players that deserve a shot in the yeah. uh, in the Prem. Sort of Marlon King uh, springs to mind. I uh, had a few stints with sort of Watford and Wigan, those yeah. sort of clubs where no one, you know, they're never going to do a job for you higher up, and no one's really expecting more than about five goals a season. Well, yeah, if you branch that out, you got you know Matt Derbyshire, Leroy Lita. Uh, yeah, so many of those. I mean, today we've got Dwight Gale, who actually, it, you know, he, he excites quite a lot of nostalgia too after that fateful game, uh, Luke, I'm sure you remember. Mm. But I think that period of time doesn't quite have the same nostalgia as the 2008-2010 golden age. See, if I was going to pick a winner, I would have to say you, Matt, just because I remember so distinctly the moment when they went top of the table with that win, because I was in a supermarket in something like France at the time, and I just remember my dad pulling up the score on his phone. He's like, oh, they've won 4-0. I don't know why I remember that so distinctly, but I always do. And um, Marlon Harewood, I don't know if anyone knows, he now runs a company where you can get your car pimped out. Um, so I think he's done a few famous footballers. So if anyone has a lot of money, I encourage you to turn to Marlon Harewood and get your car done. My player, I don't know, I probably wouldn't pick him to win out of those because... He's a kind of player that the streets will forget. Does does anyone remember Alfonso Alves? Yeah, is it Middlesbrough, right? Yeah, Middlesbrough for two seasons. The only reason I went for him is because I properly, I'd say, came into football in around, yeah, that 2009 stage when I was playing Pezzo 09 and he was my strike partner up front for Middlesbrough on my player career. And so he, in a way, he sort of taught me the ropes in football and obviously I ended up surpassing him and I moved to Bolton and scored a lot of goals alongside Johan Almander, and then eventually Barcelona. But yeah, that, I mean, that Middlesbrough team was fantastic. You had David Wheater, Didier Digard, Stuart Downing, above all, and Gareth Southgate, of course, was a manager. So 
I'll always be fond of them and the sort of Wigan team around that time with Amir Zaki and all of those lot. But yeah, um, Alfonso Alves for me, even though he didn't really score many goals, he was meant to be the talisman who came in and saved them, but they ended up getting relegated. So he probably didn't do his job. Speaking of relegation, we are moving on to a team who are probably going to be quite sad at the moment. If everyone recalls, if you've been listening to this podcast a few times, you will know the name FC Opava, who in the first episode were rooted at the bottom of the Czech League. In the second episode, were rooted at the bottom of the Czech League. And in this third episode, well, you can guess what I'm going to say. They're stuck at the bottom of the Czech League and they haven't been doing very well recently. Uh, Gaza, you missed out on the second podcast, so you're kind of coming back at Opava with some more fresh eyes. What do you make of recent times for them? Uh, yeah, I extremely poor. Um, I don't know if you touched on it, but the Czech Cup loss to lower league opposition, a compounding 3-0 defeat, some, just a couple of nil-nils and some losses here and there. I don't think the future looks bright for Opava in the current league at the moment. Uh, nine points, three points uh, above, below 17th, um, four or five points uh, below safety. I don't really think that the great escape will happen for FC Opava. No, it was a real shame crashing out of the cup against a Carlo Vivari, if I'm pronouncing that right, a third mid-table third division team. So they'll be really disappointed with that. And they are five points away from safety. Matt and James, I don't know what you want to pick up on. And I feel like, you know, we could end up covering the same ground every week. But is there anything you want to mention about Opava? I think what's disappointing, just looking at the results, is they have had a few games against sides around them. They played against... Um, 17th, so second to bottom at the weekend and drew 0 0. Uh, they played against Burnlo just outside the relegation zone, uh, using my using my pronunciation skills from a Habsburg, Habsburg history module last year. Um, and they lost 2 0. Uh, and those are the sort of the, the games I imagine that at the start of the season they'd have been marking down as potential wins. I don't think anyone was expecting, you know, miracles considering where they finished before the league was suspended last year. But, um, yeah, to drop, to, to basically take one point from from six against sort of relegation rivals really probably does put a few nails in the proverbial coffin. Uh, no, I mean, one goal from nine games says it all, really. Um, but you have to bear in mind, key injuries to uh, attacking midfielder Holick and uh, striker Jurena, who I think are both um, the top scorers this season with a massive two each. Um, I think, you know, Radoslav Kovic really needs to find a way to score goals here or else we, we are in real danger. And as, we, as James says, we've played some of the teams around us. Upcoming is sixth place and then third. Yeah, doesn't look good. Yeah, it's going to be tricky for him. It's a bit insulting to him that if you actually type in FC Opava, um, the kind of first thing that comes up saying manager on the Wikipedia page isn't Radoslav Kovac, it's whoever was last season. So they really do need to update that. It's only when you actually click on that you find out that it's him who is responsible for this mess. Um, maybe that'll be a topic on James's uh, Habsburg history module one day. But is it time to pull the trigger? What do we think? I feel really awful saying this because we shouldn't be speculating about this poor man's career that we don't know about. But is the moment coming where we have to pull the trigger and say, Radoslav, mate, you're not doing the job? It actually links quite well. Uh, obviously, Kovac, a man from the sort of who you know dabbled a little bit in sort of the the prime Barclay era for West Ham, 
um, before they got relegated. Um, but I think the, the issue, obviously, is what what are the expectations? I can't imagine the expectations were any more than sort of battle bravely against relegation, a sort of football manager would would put it. Um, so I imagine that there's not much else that they could that you could really be expected to do. It's a bit of a poison chalice. Yeah, to draw further parallels, I mean, like Jason Tindall, he's only been assistant before. That was at Sparta Prague, which of course is an esteemed team in, in Czech Republic. But, you know, he hasn't got that experience and he, like Tindall, can't get the team ticking, can't get a, a, a tune out of them in, up front. So clearly he's lacking experience and know-how. And for all the nostalgia that James just mentioned, um, not good enough. Yeah, I think um, he was assistant there for three years and Apava have the enviable record of having lost 12 consecutive games against Sparta Prague, I think. So he must have been a part of that. And now on the other side of that formula, we can't turn it round. Um, any parting comments, Gaza, before we move on? What do you think about Kovac? Yeah, I think the Tyndall comparisons are spot on. I don't think he's cutting it. But I guess, as harked back to what James said, what are their expectations? Do they get relegated, rebuild again and have another stab at it? Or do they quickly switch out another manager, desperately attempt to make up those five points and try and stay up and then struggle again next season? I don't know. I think if I was on the SFC Opava board, I would have to think about it and maybe maybe keep him just to see what, what he could produce in his next few games. If they did get relegated, I think next season would be the test of it, whether they are top of the league below and can get promotion again. Yeah, why don't we take a gentle-minded view of him? Give him a chance. He's, he's learning the trade. Give Radoslav Kovac a chance. That is what we're saying here at Gone Too Far. And if anybody wants to invest some money in the club, um, we're not formally allowed to advertise them, but please go and do that. Finally, we're moving on to our final section, which is kind of imbued with personal experience because, as the listeners may or may not know, two of us here have been referees before. That's... Uh, me and Gaza and James Reed has dabbled a bit but more predominantly you were a coach and Matt Stiles to a lesser extent as far as I'm aware was a coach of uh, Grey College B team for one ill-fated season um, before well, I, was... I think I think coach is uh, overstepping it I mean I was um, I was the, the team captain of the B team and the C team for so... the sake of argument you're a coach um, yeah but... The occasional El Rondo on a Tuesday night was the, yeah, was the limit to it. What was your vision? What did you aim to bring to the B team? Um, well, I want to just enabling that platform was the main thing for me. Just the joy of being out there and seeing my scribblings and lectures come to life in a Christmas tree formation. And just, yeah, I mean, I probably had nothing to do with it. The elementary um, innovations at college sport level were plain to see. But um, I like to think I had some role in, in driving us to firstly a sixth place finish in the second division and then shortly after a seventh place finish in the first division the year after. Oh, so you were captain for two years? Yeah, two separate teams. I got the promotion after that uh, esteemed sixth place finish. Oh, what, a, what a flexible coach you are. You can manage across divisions, across eras, as has been proven. Um, James Reed. What stands out from your coaching career? What were your successes, failures, highs, lows? I think I suppose the thing that stands out is coaching. So I coached from for quite a few years, basically taking a team from about under sixes, under sevens, up to they're now under twelves. But obviously, when I went to university, sort of became a, very much a part timer. 
Um, but when you coach younger kids, you, you do get all sorts going on. But I mean, I suppose you two might chat a little bit more about sort of abuse towards referees. Um, but coaches and my sort of part-time refereeing of a sort of a, a, a game played by six-year-olds still managed to warrant enough abuse. I was uh, accosted by two parents at the end of a game of sort of, you know, an under eights game that these are non-competitive by the way you know um leagues i've got no sort of league standings to show for my for my efforts thankfully uh but um i was accosted by two parents over my my decision not to award a foul in the last minute to her son uh which obviously would have made a big difference to the four nil defeat they were already heading to her seven-year-old son and i was also i had to make a controversial uh, goal line decision where the ball clearly didn't cross the line only to then have a parent walk onto the pitch to inform me that the ball had actually crossed the line uh, only to discover that it wasn't even his son that uh, who shot it was um, and then he had to then be be calmed down by the uh, his son's manager um, but yeah it's proving that people do really take uh, under eight football pretty seriously it seems. And did you feel that pressure as a coach to perform, to deliver results? No, basically. I mean, I think the, the main thing for uh, when you've got 28 seven-year-olds to, on, on, a, on a Saturday morning, the main thing is to uh, make sure everyone gets on, gets plenty of time, you know, making sure no parents get angsty about, it's more about sort of making sure that everyone gets time on the pitch rather than results. No one wants their child being given five minutes at the age of eight. So it's more about that really, but ultimately, you know, most parents are pretty pretty understanding that their kid's not going to be the next uh, messy if they're still sort of playing, uh, you know, that sort of level at nine, ten years old. Most people are just there for the community spirit, which is the really nice thing about sort of managing a, 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 a small community side. Mm. I always like to see it in professional terms. I remember we used to be bottom of the league pretty much every season for a number of years and Springfield's FC not, uh, related with Homer Simpson were our main rivals and I think we played them say twice in the space of three or four games and they were bottom of the league and we gave them a right trouncing in the first game um, they had this dad who was a manager and then the next game we played them it was this mum and so we all said that he'd been sacked as a result of the defeat and I, I was like to think that you know maybe there was something going on there maybe Springfield did have ambition and they flew too close to the sun or something and thought, no, all right, we're getting rid of this man. He, he's not cutting the mustard. Yeah, there, there, there can be pressures for referees in the lower leagues, like you mentioned, um, even when there's not very much on the line, seemingly. Uh, players seem to think there's so much more, and so do the coaches and fans. James Gascoigne, you were a referee for quite a number of years. Was it for kids and adults, am I right? Uh, it was girls. It was uh, under 14s, under 15s and under 16s girls teams the local okay. girls they had a, a scheme where uh they needed a lot of referees because unsurprisingly with some of the stories i might tell you later uh they had an epidemic of referees quitting after doing one game and never returning again so they wanted a couple of the local you know boys to uh get trained to be referees and then come and referee just specifically for the local bishop thought teams um, I did for about three years before I, I gave up and never wanted to referee ever again because of uh, the experiences. Um, I've had to abandon a few games. I've uh, yellow cards in under-14s girls' games, which is very surprising. 
But I always found that some of the parents took it a lot more seriously in girls' football uh, than in boys' football, that they were a lot more passionate and a lot more hard tackles flying in. And uh, people didn't really seem to care whether they maimed the opponent as long as uh, they got some remnants of the ball in that. Uh, a few controversial decisions I had to make. There always seemed to be some teams in the league that were so much better than a lot of the other teams. So when the top of the table met the bottom of the table, it would you know, result in a slaughtering, a couple of 14, 15 nillers. Uh, and sometimes I just had to blow the games early because I couldn't stand to see the opposition crying when the goals kept coming in. Uh, so perhaps that was a controversial decision, but uh, for the sake of everyone, I thought it was the best thing to do. Yeah, you got to make them big decisions and it can be a lonely place being a referee. You know, they always say, oh, you can at max maybe only please half the people with any given decision. Do you think there's anything people should know about refereeing? Is there something that people don't understand what it's like? I do think it's a lot of the time it's people, you know, like me and yourself, who've given up Saturday mornings of a lie-in, who could be playing football of their own, watching the match of the day, who have come down in the freezing cold to uh, for a very minimal fee to um, make a few controversial decisions, which, you know, you don't really want to make. You don't have linesmen, uh, you don't have gun line technology. You can't have these multiple replays with VAR. And it's a very hard and lonely job often. So perhaps maybe give them a little bit of an easier time. But I do think that sometimes from my own experience of playing, referees make the game about themselves. I think that was one of the things I quickly learned was that the game, I shouldn't be the centre. Best referees are the most anonymous ones. Mm. Yeah, I go along with that. Like, it is hard when there's no replays. What I found at first, I was sort of somehow expecting there to be a replay. Sometimes when you have something that might have crossed a line. And I think what people used to kind of shout about a lot was, hey, you've made that decision too late. But it's weird how replaying it in your head can really help and taking those six or seven seconds to somehow re-see the incident in your head can kind of make it a lot easier, the decision to make. But by then, someone could be down the other end and they're thinking, oh, why are you blown for the foul then? Nothing's happened. You said there was no foul. But actually, somehow, you kind of do have a camera in your head that can see things later on. Yeah, I mean, I've played Sunday League, or I did play Sunday League for nine, ten years at the same club in my local town. And none of the dads ever wanted to be a referee, you know they'd actively resist it if they could because <laughs> you know we need a culture shift really um rugby people who like rugby always tell me how it's so superior because you look at the referee and so much respect is awarded to them whereas in football it's just this opportunity to like unleash your your darkest sort of things and um the anger that you have that builds up through the week and they shouldn't be uh, the person that takes the brunt of that but I mean, uh, when I was younger, I was always quite an anti-authoritarian player. My stepdad once uh, refereed a game and disallowed one of my goals. And so I threw my boot at him and walked home. <laughs> and I think it took that for me to sort of take a step back and realise that, yeah, that's not acceptable behaviour. And nor should it be in anybody, no matter how um, the injustice of the decision. And I think in college sport level, I think fortunately, even if the ref has had a, had a mare, you won't be abused in the same way because obviously that will be scaled up to the, the authorities at the uni and everything. But I think as you grow older, you should keep that sense of perspective. And I hope you've never uh, 
too nastily abused by anyone over the age of 14? I, I don't think... I wasn't too badly abused. So I refereed up to under-16s and then also was a linesman for the adults. And it was a baptism of fire because my first season, I just did the adults. And one of the first games I had was a bloodbath that was called off at about half time because I think the the maximum number of players have been sent off. Like once you've sent off five players off a team, you have to abandon the game. And obviously that happened because there was uh, so much scuffling and players with bloody noses that that sort of happened. But it's weird how the little things can grind you down and just every single complaint, even if it's good natured, well, not good natured, but, you know, they, they just think, oh, come on, ref. It's weird how it can sort of chip away at you. And then um, I never found it too difficult to cope with. I never despaired, but you, you did have a whole range of characters. I remember one manager called Gary Deboulay, who was quite a, an imposing figure for Preston Wanderers, uh, who were quite a successful adults team around where I used to uh, referee. And you just could not move the man. And of course, as a referee or a liner, you can't lay your hands on uh, coaches or anyone. And you wouldn't have dreamed of doing it to him because he was quite a hot-tempered, powerful man. And if you won his respect, honestly, you thought, yes, I've won his respect. I've got his handshake. What an amazing feeling that is. But he just used to stand in your way on the touchline so that you couldn't see things. Um, I mean, well, the whole of Preston Wanderers did. They just used to sometimes go out about five metres onto the pitch and just stand there shouting. And I think, how am I supposed to see anything here? And I remember one time when he went on the pitch, a free kick, went to the edge of the box and started arranging his defence. And I was, you can't do that. What are you doing? But at the end of the day, I was just some 16-year-old kid shouting at this fully grown man to move away. When he wasn't going to move away, no one could do a single thing. And so even though you're kind of invested with this authority, you're not in a strange way. And people just still act the same over and over again and don't really change towards you. And I also think it's weird, and I don't know how much you relate to this, uh, James, is being conscious that you're making the wrong decisions and not changing them. Or you give a decision and then think, what can I do? It's gone now. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. But I always found it really strange that you were aware you were having a bad game, but somehow not able to change it and make the right calls. I mean, I've certainly had it in terms of when I've been in the situations where I've been sort of like refing and trying to coach at the same time, because like that's often how it is at sort of under sevens, under eights. You're trying to make sure everyone is subbed on at the right time. And ref, I've often had decisions where I'm not, I haven't actually seen it. I'm, I'm trying to sort something else out. Some, you know, trying to get some other kid ready to come on and some kids, you know, someone's asking which way is a throw in and you just have to sort of just decide. I think there's ultimately you know, people will just accept it if, but I think it is about culture change, really. Like, I think I played rugby at school and wouldn't dare say anything, but then, yeah, on Sunday, I'd be chipping away at a ref. And it's like, so I'm the same person, but I think it's just that culture of, like, you just don't do it in rugby. It's just so frowned upon. Whereas in football, most people accept that it's bad, but they're sort of happy to let it slide, really. And so I think really it is that culture change in saying, it's just not acceptable to chat a referees like that. And I think that will help the decision-making process because even if you do make a wrong decision, everyone's understanding that it is difficult and that you're not going to get pelted for it so you can become more confident in your decisions or you're not scared of making a decision. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that. I mean, I umpired for cricket in a couple of cricket youth tournaments 
And sometimes, you know, with decisions like LBW, you don't really see it. You just have to make a call either way. And people would be screaming at you, you know, how's that? But you give not out. And people would accept that. And then they'd walk back to their mark and the game would carry on. Whereas in football, you know, you might not see an offside. You don't have the luxury of having linos. At least I didn't. Uh, so you just have to make the call. It's usually just 50-50. So if you give an offside, um, people will just carry on screaming at you, expecting somehow for you to overturn your decision. Even if you did overturn your decision, what would then happen? Well, would it be a free kick to the to the team that you blew the offside against? Uh, people, some pe- Sometimes people don't understand that your knowledge of the rules is a little bit greater than theirs are. So with these sometimes particular decisions, um, back before they changed it, with the goal kick, you couldn't pass to someone inside the goalkeeper's box. It had to be outside the box before the player then touched it. And players would do it and I'd blow the whistle and people would be shouting at me as if because they didn't actually know, know that it was a rule and you go over you try and explain it to them and you get more abuse. And it's like what you said, if you're aware that you're having a bad game, sometimes it can only get worse. Um, and with people chipping away at you, I always found that the worst things for my confidence were not the people shouting on the sidelines because I think you can get used to that. Uh, and sometimes if you make a call, you get a bunch of people shouting off, oh, good decision ref, which is a nice change. I think it's the people after the game sometimes. I had a, a particular manager who, um, from where I'm from, he uh, knew my dad and he put in a complaint to my dad about me trying to get me to never ref again. And in one of the games, he took me uh, arm over the shoulder at the end of the game and kind of whispered into my ear, you know, you had an absolute shocker there. You clearly don't know what you're doing. Um, you, yeah. you know, maybe read the rules. And I think that was, that knocked my confidence more than people, you know, swearing at you from the sidelines. Mm. Yeah, and you take it as a really personal affront because so much of it is about dealing with people and you're thinking, well, am I approaching this the wrong way? I remember, yeah, there was one game I turned up and I was doing the talk with the captains, and one of the kids, about 10 years old, walked towards, oh, this referee, he's really cool, this is going to be a great game. At half-time, he hated me, and I'm thinking, what have I done so wrong that this kid has gone from liking me to hating me? And you do feel that guilt when, if you haven't seen something or heard something, sometimes you get someone who's claimed to have been stamped on, and I didn't see it, and this kid's writhing in agony and sometimes yeah you can interpret that and think well okay something probably happened but if you genuinely haven't seen something and you can easily miss things how, how on earth can you send someone off for something you haven't seen and you also get people who are saying you know, someone's verbally abused me in some way it's really not acceptable again if you haven't seen something so you're sort of left there in this awkward situation where people are getting really upset really hurt and you're not sure what the right path to do is. You can't always trust people when you're a referee. The kids often, well, pretty much all the time, the linesmen are just some parent with one of the teams, and inevitably they give slightly biased decisions. You do get some fair ones, but a lot of the time they are looking to favour their team. And if you favour them too much, then suddenly everyone's kicking off saying, well, he's a biased linesman. How can you go with him? But if you're 30 metres away you're not necessarily checking for offside all the time you've kind of got to trust it if you think it's a reasonable decision from when you from where you're stood I think gradually at least now we're starting to see the psychological toll that um they can have on a referee you see with um Darren Drylsdale in the Ipswich game the other day squaring up to was Alan Judge 
Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were and are they justified ever to, to square up to a player in that way um, if they're receiving abuse during the game? Should they take a stand? Are they you know, in, their, in their rights to do so? I think ultimately it's, ne- it's never ultimately it's never appropriate. You wouldn't say that even if, say, if a player was abused on a pitch, ultimately the solution, the long-term solution, why you could empathise with the with the with the, the decision to sort of square up to them or perhaps lash out, it's not sort of a long-term thing that we can condone in the long term and say if you get abused, you can it's a free hit. You know, we obviously can't get to that point, but I do think it does raise that that issue that players do speak it's not a two-way street players do speak to referees in a way that referees simply do not speak to the players and a lot of time it's the managers and the coaches that can be you know barking as much as as we sort of like to to laugh at Neil Warnock he absolutely loves basically almost constant commentary at the ref and it must be very difficult to actually do your job so I think you know I'm I'm a supporter of miking up referees in the way that they do in rugby and the way that they have done in some leagues, like the A-League. Um, not least because it will give us a bit of transparency on VAR, but also it will stop players sort of rushing up to referees and swearing at them and people might actually think about what they say. Um, and hopefully that will protect referees a little bit more. Yeah, yeah I, um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the Neil Warnock footage of the under-23s Borough game of him shouting and basically, well, you know, you see all these comments on Twitter, you know, laughing laughing emojis and the whatnot. You know, at the end of the day, he's gone to an uh, an under-23s game with the sole purpose, I think, in my view, of just taking the piss out of the referee the entire time. There's no merits to it. He, He might be looking at the youth players, but he's spending his entire time you know, abusing the referee. And while some, you know, average person may find that funny, uh, you know, it's going to, those under 23 referees are usually the ones who are being developed to go into the higher leagues. If that's the experience you're getting, only 23s, and you know that that's what managers are going to be like in the championship, in the Prem, League One, League Two, then it's just going to discourage you. You're not going to want to continue your journey as a referee, which is the problem that I think I found myself. Um, I had a mate who, who I refer well, we both went through the refereeing course together and we both did uh, girls games and then he went on to do uh, academy level games. So like uh, York City girls and then Leeds girls and he lined for them. And I got the offer because he couldn't do one of the games. So I got the offer to do uh, Leeds girls, uh, I think maybe like an under 19s game to line and because of the abuse that I've received at, um, you know, under 14s girls games, I really didn't want to do it. Because if that's what it's going to be like at um, under 14s, I can only imagine what it's going to be like at under 19s when things are actually competitive. You know, the average uh, Saturday league, third division, under 14s girls game, I mean, while it is competitive, it's, it doesn't have a lot resting on it if it's like a seventh to the eighth game. Whereas, you know, these Leeds under 20s games, you know, it could be the the difference between getting promoted and getting relegated. It could be the amount of money that the club receives from getting promotion or getting relegation. And even linoing, you still get a lot of abuse because you are the one that the crowd can then direct their shouting towards because you are there's only a small gap between you and the actual fans. So, you know, people like to laugh at this abuse. And as you've said, you know, people like Warnock and stuff, but it really can deter referees. And the problem now that we've got is we've got such a small pool of Premier League referees who actually want to do it that when people make mistakes, you don't have the room to 
relegate them to the championship to referee there and get their confidence back before you come up. People like Mike Dean and John Moss who are making mistakes week in, week out. There's no there's no authority there to kind of put them in their place almost. You know, the game is about them because there is not a new crop of referees to come up and then take their place because no one wants to do it anymore. There's no progression. Yeah, but you talk, you talk about um, sending him down to lower leagues to regain confidence. You saw, was it last week, um, Steve Evans at Ginningham publicly criticising the ref, um, you know, really going into him because he referred to a few Lincoln players by nicknames. I mean, it's still just as toxic, I, I believe, if not more, actually, because you have less sort of um, publicity of it in those lower leagues. So where, where, do you, where do you get to then? I don't know. We were all, it was always among our sort of selection of referees touted that once you reached academy level, that was a promised land and that players were somehow more disciplined or respectful. If you managed to get through the brutality of Sunday league, then you earned less abuse the higher up you went. But I don't think that ever bore out in, I mean, I never went, went up the uh, divisions really, but from the people I spoke to who were kind of more aspiring as referees, it never seemed to get any easier for them. I also think I like what you picked up on uh, Gaza with being a liner and not being able to escape. You literally have to stand there on the halfway line. If there is a corner in one half, you stand on the halfway line and you feel like the guy stood next to you is simmering with hate if you're given a few dodgy decisions against them. And it's really quite an awkward situation. And yeah, you can't escape it. I don't. I, I never noticed any correlation between performance and level of abuse. You could have a really good game. And as you were saying before as well, Gaza, keep coming back to you. There are laws that you know that other people don't know. For instance, a corner could be taken from either side. It doesn't matter which side it went out. And one time I remember a team took it to the other side from where it had gone out. And everyone was like, oh, that, they can't do that. They can't do that. And really having a go at me for it. And I'm just like, that's the actual rule. I know you never see it, so you're not going to believe me, but they're allowed to do that if they want. And yeah, I don't think the level really changes it too much, in my opinion, as much as they have the respect banners kind of laid out at kids' games and the handshake at the start and all of that sort of stuff. At the end of the day, they can still be brutal and say quite nasty things and very personal things about you. And yeah, who knows? Are we ending there? Is that the end of this quite touching, heartfelt segment, maybe? Yes. A bit of a sad note to end on, but I guess one last thing would be that if anyone does want to referee, the culture has certainly changed uh, since me and Luke and James have all uh, refereed. And as Matt has, you know, ever so gracefully said, that there does need to be a culture shift. And I think somewhat we are almost seeing that. So I think don't be put off refereeing by our uh, somewhat negative portrayals of refereeing because... It is a reward. If it goes right, it goes right. And it's a very rewarding experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We should give a positive note as well. You do have games where everything goes perfect and everyone loves you and you're the referee they never had and want you every week and that sort of thing. And it can be really good. And over time, you do develop unique relationships with teams and you keep refereeing the same ones over and over again. And you notice their characteristics and become really invested in the league and almost feel bad when you give a penalty to deny them winning the league or something like that because you think 
you've grown fond of them over the course of the season. And with that, we will draw a close uh, to this episode of Gone Too Far. Thank you very much for joining us. We've talked about quite a lot today and brought in a lot of emotive language and anything that people at English language A-level are told to use. And we hope that you will listen to whenever the next episode is, which is hopefully not too far away. So uh, thank you very much. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.